Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. I think I yelled in the mic again. <laughs> Everybody's excited when you yell. It's all good. It's so true. I usually just turn myself down, so then I say that I've yelled, but it doesn't <laughs> hopefully sound like it. Like, I haven't broken any eardrums recently. So. If you've broken your eardrum, please let us know at hashtag HKHSPod on Twitter. Right. Watch that be the comments that we actually get. We hear from nobody about anything. And then it's, thanks for breaking my eardrum. <laughs> we, we aim are... to please. <laughs> so we're finally talking about a show namesake, right? It's true. Yes. So the protagonist of The Hate You Give is Star Carter. And that's the star from the series title, if you didn't know. <laughs> yes, which apparently a lot of people do not. I think a lot of people know the Katniss and the Harry, and they do not know the Hazel or the Star. We're bringing the realist YA. We're bringing it back. Mm-hmm. In a, in a big way. <laughs> but before we dig into this much-anticipated book that I know we have a lot to talk about, mm-hmm. uh, we should do news. Do you have any news for us, Joe? Yeah. So I had actually aimed to watch an episode of Deadly Class, which is the TV show that's airing on the Sci-Fi Network. It's about the 80s school for assassins that I talked about in the 2019 YA forecast episode. Right. And then I decided to go out for lunch with a friend. And (laughs) so I didn't get to watch that. How dare you? How actually dare you? Once again, I'm just finding ways to not do my homework. (laughs) So instead, I'll just talk about a book that came in off my Brenna's library holds list. (laughs) So this is called What If It's Us? (gasps) Have you heard of this one? I have heard of this one. Yeah, I knew you had because of the author. So this is written by Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera. And of course, Becky Albertalli is... What is she known for? Is it Simon? Yes. Yes. Sorry, well, Simon, Simon and the, the Homo Sapiens agenda. Yes. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is one, actually, ironically enough, I found it when I was doing research for our forecast episode because it had only just come out and people were talking about it as a big book that had come out, I think, in the last quarter of Mm-hmm. 2018. Mm-hmm. And I was like, cool, okay, tell me all about it. So it's essentially two guys, Arthur and Ben, and they have a meet cute in New York City over the summer. And they end up having a cutesy love affair. And it just sounds very charming, very easygoing. I mean, I'm assuming based on the feedback that I've seen from Simon and the Homo Sapien agenda that there's going to be a little bit more substance to that, but it also kind of just sounds like a cute queer love story, which I can really do with. Yes. Okay. So I read an advanced reading copy of this earlier last year. Oh, okay. I loved it. And there are some issues that come up around homophobia. There's a little bit of discussion about cheating. There's a little bit of a panic attack thing. But like what I really liked about this is that it's a queer YA romance where, like, for the most part, everything's pretty happy, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Which, in this day and age, I will take as a giant win. (laughs) It's so true. Like, I saw one of the comps for it said it was a a queer sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Let us know. Okay. Okay. And what have you got? I am taking the feedback to heart that I only ever talk about things I say I'm gonna read and rarely talk about things I have read. Um, So today I'm bringing a thing that I have read. I just finished reading book two of comic series called Strong Female Protagonist. Okay. 
So it's a webcomic, and many of our listeners probably are aware of it as a webcomic and maybe even follow it as a webcomic. I have to confess that for someone who loves comics and loves the internet, I find webcomics really hard to keep up with. Me too. Like, I'll spend an afternoon when I probably should be doing something else binging a bunch of them, and then I won't look at them again for years, possibly. So... In 2014, the first volume of Strong Female Protagonist got uh, kickstarted into like a book, and I read that and then didn't really think about it again. I liked Strong Female Protagonist. It's about a bunch of teens. Something kind of happens, and a bunch of teens end up with superpowers, and it's sort of how they all deal with it. Nice. Yeah, and the main character, Allison, she's retired from her superhero role because she wants to go to college and be like a normal teen. Mm-hmm. And I liked it. It was super sweet, but I didn't really think of anything of it. And then when I was at the library the other day, I saw they had book two in, so I picked it up. And book two is phenomenal. Oh, really? Okay. So good. Like, I would even say you don't actually need to have read book one. I would read book two and then go back to book one as like a prequel kind of thing. Um, And the plot line that I love the most in it is one of Allison's former superhero buddies is assassinating men who have been accused of sexual assault but gotten away with it. And so there's this whole plot line about and thematic question about like she's being hunted as a supervillain because of this Hmm. um as because she's committing basically extrajudicial yeah killings executing some vigilante justice (laughs) which is still illegal but she has this great reflective piece in the middle of the first chapter of book two where she talks about how you could be in the army and you could go into a war zone and you could kill a bunch of innocent civilians as collateral damage and you're a hero Mm -hmm. but she is killing these people who have done like horrific horrible things and she's a villain and there's this question of like well what if you get it wrong once and she's like okay but what if i don't right and it's anyway it's just really interesting it's a very nuanced and thoughtful take on sexual assault and its impact on people i was just like so blown away by how good and how effectively it dealt with this issue and how much the whole volume makes you think about right and wrong and what is morality and like she's in a philosophy class at college that makes her think all of these interesting thoughts about whether her own superhero ethos is really like an ethos of tyranny and it's just like i can't even tell you i finished it this morning when the baby and i were having our quiet reading time like we do in the mornings and it was just i really really recommend everybody go pick up book two especially if webcomics like overwhelm you i guess it's still being published on the web so you know when you finish it you can go and see where the series goes but i think volume two is a really good place to start sounds Again, deep. Um... <laughs> but also, like, it is, like, there are moments of levity and there's a romance subplot and it's not painful. I just, I'm really impressed when comics deal sensitively with these kinds of real world issues, but triangulated through the kind of superhero idea that maybe makes it a little bit safer to talk about. I just thought mm-hmm. it was really well done. Anyway, I don't think I even said it's written by Brennan Lee Mulligan and drawn by Molly Ostertag. And it's, yeah, it's just really good. <sighs> okay. Worth checking out. Definitely. I'm always looking for more graphic novels, so... I think you'll really like it, but start with book two. Okay, will do. <laughs> <laughs> so our main event for the week, and it's uh, speaking of deep and heavy. Yeah. We are sticking on theme. So we are talking about Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, which I don't even know what publication year this is. Uh, 2017. 
Okay. Yeah, I thought it was fairly recent, but then I was surprised because, of course, I think I mentioned a few episodes back that every year Goodreads publishes a list of their top books in various different categories. And then this year they did an overall best of since they started doing that, or maybe for the last 10 years. And The Hate You Give won not the YA category, the overall best book. So it's a huge accomplishment. I follow Angie Thomas on Twitter, and she was talking about how overwhelming it's been to have her book be on the New York Times bestseller list for 95 weeks straight. (laughs) So this is a text that really has connected with people. And I can certainly understand why having now finished it. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it deserves all the praise it's gotten. Yes. So The Hate You Give is another realist YA story, but told from a really unique perspective. So much of especially realist bestseller YA is written by white people and it's from a very sort of middle-class white perspective and Mm -hmm. we don't get a lot of varied voices on the bestseller list and this is not that so the hate you give is told from the perspective of star carter so star is living this dual existence she lives in and has grown up in a mostly poor mostly black neighborhood called garden heights but her parents have pulled her out of the school there with her brothers and sending her to a predominantly white private school called williamson I guess it's Williamson Prep. So she has this dual existence. She doesn't feel like she can be her whole self in either space. She can't sort of talk about what it's like in her community with her friends at school because she doesn't want to be seen as the disadvantaged one. And she can't talk about her school experiences with the people in her community because she doesn't want to be seen as turning her back on her community. And so she's already kind of living this fractured existence. When she goes to a party at the end of spring break and shots are fired at the party, she escapes the party with her friend Khalil just to get out of the scene and make sure that they're both safe. But on their drive home, they're stopped by the police and Khalil is shot. For Star, this is sort of a, obviously a moment of tragedy, but also a moment of her identities have to collapse in a certain way because she's grieving but she can't talk about why she's grieving with her friends from school and she's pushed towards activism as a result so the story is really just about her trying to navigate the waters of like being a witness to a horrific murder while simultaneously trying to maintain this life at school and what i like about the book is that it's a very believable voice yeah Oh, yeah. We talk sometimes about like hearing the adult voice come in or just like not authentically to themselves, but there's something very honest about Star and her desire to navigate both of these spaces. And I really appreciated the way she talks about how there are authentic parts of both of herselves in these two existences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, I mean, as much as it's an issue book in the big capital I issue sense, because it's dealing with police brutality, violence, Black Lives Matter, all those kinds of things, it's also very much a sort of an identity novel, a novel about somebody trying to forge their identity in difficult circumstances, which is perfect stomping ground for YA. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try not to be superlative with the way that we talk about this, but I kind of feel like to do anything but would be disingenuous because this book is honestly, it's hitting all of the checkboxes about the capacity for YA mm-hmm. to do everything. Like mm-hmm. this is a coming of age story. This is a Black Lives Matter story. It's a romance, right? It's a family drama. Yeah, like it's doing everything and it's doing them. Oh God, so, it's about teen girl so, friendships. So well. Yeah, like it's yeah. 
it's just kind of crazy because every time I thought, oh, this is getting a little a little rote or a little bit familiar, all of a sudden it would veer or it would introduce even just a couple of lines of dialogue or, you know, we're getting the voiceover narration. So we're really inside Star's head for a lot of this. Mm -hmm. But her voice, you're right, is so authentic and so rich and interesting. But the way that Angie Thomas weaves everything together it never makes it seem like she doesn't have a handle on what she's trying to do, even though it honestly feels like there's about 80 plates in the air at any given time. Yeah, it's amazing how much gets accomplished in... I mean, it's a long novel, but it doesn't feel like it. The pacing is really well done, I felt. Mm -hmm. To the point where sometimes it's exhausting, I think intentionally. Like, Star is dealing with a lot. And yes. we have the same effective sometimes overwhelmed response to trying to keep all of these aspects of her life in the air and separate and not letting anyone down and feeling like she's doing justice to her dead friend but also keeping her family safe by keeping her identity a secret and like there's all of this stuff going on and sometimes it's overwhelming but Angie Thomas is so good at modulating the gas right it's like just mm -hmm. when you think it's absolutely at it's like highest overwhelm you get a beautiful yeah. family moment right or yeah. you get a really sweet moment between star and her boyfriend chris that alleviates right and so mm -hmm. i felt like my affective response and star's affective response were very much the same and that's a hard thing to do effectively that's yeah. a really hard thing to do effectively it is and i think part of what works the most for me about the book is not just the juggling act not just angie thomas's ability to interweave all these different kinds of stories but her ability to tell both a macro and a mm. micro level yes. story so this is a book that is about really big heavy things like this is about racism this mm -hmm. is about black lives matters this is about income inequality and policing states and all those kinds of things and it's also the story about a teenage girl trying to navigate having a, a white boyfriend and a dad who maybe isn't all that open to it. And like, there's such little pieces that I think will strike a chord with literally every reader. But then it's also telling things that are literally happening, shaping the world, particularly North America at this very moment. Like this yes. book feels so prescient. Is it, that right? Yes. Prescient? <laughs> yes, yeah. Also, it's. I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that, as well as being one of the bestsellers of 2017, it was also one of the 10 most challenged books of 2017, according to the American Library Association. Really? Yes. So I'm um, both not surprised and deeply disappointed. <laughs> so there were a number of challenges to it across the U.S., probably most notably the South Carolina Police Union raised objections that it had been included in a summer reading list for high school students. A quote from the union is that this book is an indoctrination of the distrust of the police. Hmm. And it's also been accused of being vulgar. <laughs> it's been accused that there's too much... They're naughty language. Well, yeah, profanity and offensive language. But also, weirdly, there was a comment that it includes drug use. And I... No, it does not. No, it does not. It's staunchly anti-drug. The whole... Yeah. It's a recurring subplot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we hear way more about characters getting clean than we ever hear about 
the drugs themselves. I was sort of shocked by that. I thought that of all the things that people couldn't complain about, you know. I thought you were going to say interracial romance, and I was about to, like, flip my deck. <laughs> I honestly didn't read all the challenges. Let's be real. Wouldn't yeah. put it past. Well, that's an exercise. And... <laughs> but we can temper some of that negativity by noting that it won a ton of awards in 2018, including the American Library Association's Best Debut Book for Teens. It won a Coretta Scott King Award. It won the Prince Award, which is like the big YA award. So critics and readers are finding this book even as some organizations, schools, police unions seek to challenge it. I mean, I can... I can obviously understand why people who are associated with the police would look at this and say, this is not a flattering portrayal of us. But I would also challenge that if you read it, I dare you to not find the reality in this book. Like Mm -hmm. this is this is not a hyped up sensationalist book. This is a frank, unflinching portrayal of the world in which we live. Like that's the reason to me that Angie Thomas is a great writer and why people are really connecting with this book. Like I would go from Twitter and the news to reading this book and it was like I was reading the exact same document. And honestly, I one of Thomas's gifts is this capacity for nuance. So like the inclusion of the character of Carlos, Carlos is Star's uncle and he is a police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and his desire to defend the people he works with to the best that he can, but also his recognition that this injustice has happened, that a colleague of his has pulled a gun on his own niece who he loves like a daughter. Like in the character of Carlos, we see so much careful recognition that there is systemic violence and systemic horrors perpetrated by police forces. Mm -hmm. And there are individuals who work within the system to the best of their ability, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. And I think Thomas is really aware of that. And I would challenge anybody who who thinks that this is an anti-police book to really think about Carlos and his experience in the novel. Yeah, because Carlos is included because he serves two functions. One, the one that you just mentioned, and one to kind of highlight this idea of social responsibility to people to stay and, I mean, I'm putting quotations around this, defend Mm -hmm. their community or to act in self-preservation mode and think about doing what you need to do to survive. So Carlos kind of straddles that idea that he's working within the community and he's seeing all of these terrible things like gang violence and drug use and he's a part of that but then he's also outside of it in his gated community home and as a as a black police officer he's balancing those two things there's no characters in this book that are only one-sided right like they're Mm -hmm. all completely multifaceted and they're serving numerous plot points and Uh, in really meaningful ways. But I love this idea of the dualities at play within the book. So it's like Star's dad, Maverick, who has chosen to stay. And then her other father figure, Carlos, who has kind of left. Mm -hmm. And they both represent viable options for Star to think about as she becomes an adult. And also, you know, her brother Seven and... Devante and the other characters who are kind of like on the cusp of becoming the next generation. Like, what do they want to be and what role do they play in shaping the world to come? And as Maverick points out, what options do they have and who is in control of 
what options they have, right? Mm -hmm. The stuff about the police shooting and the inevitability that, of course, the DA would not side with them. You mm -hmm. know, that I do kind of love the idea that there isn't really a lot of hope for that, despite mm -hmm. the fact that it is a large arc over the course of the novel. Oh my god, but I want it so bad. Even this was my second read of the novel, and I still was like, maybe this time there will be justice. <laughs> See, I, I never felt that. I felt it for Star because I, I think yeah. she wanted it, but so I felt badly. like she and I were in sync that it was like, I can do these, I can play your game, I can be Williamson Star and say all the right things mm -hmm. and be proper and be polite and not give you a reason to doubt me and you still will not agree with me because mm -hmm. that is the injustice of the world in which these characters are living. Right. That's the system that everyone is up against. Mm-hmm. But I did love this idea that the book is also really future focused. Like it's so interested in how Maverick and how Star's mom, Lisa, they present one option, mm -hmm. like one mode of sort of attacking these injustices and standing up for yourself and being true and proud and responsible. And then we've got King mm -hmm. and Aisha. Aisha as these bad parent models, right? Mm -hmm. So the biggest drug runner, mob boss equivalent, and his drug abusing wife. Or sorry, no, she's not a drug user. She's, I apologize, I misspoke. She is a battered wife, but yes. she's also not a good mother as a result. Or, I mean, that's, that's a little too black and white. <laughs> well, what I like about Aisha's character, as infuriating as she is for most of the book, is that she does get an opportunity towards the end of the text to use what little she has yep. to sacrifice herself on behalf of her kids. Mm -hmm. And it's a moment that even her son doesn't fully understand, that Star kind of has to explain to him that she has done exactly that. She's given him his freedom. And I, I love that because this is a woman in incredibly desperate circumstances who has not made good choices and has not made the best choices for her children. Yes. And even she is given a moment of heroism. That's what I mean about Thomas's capacity for nuance. Like mm -hmm. everyone in this book has failings and frailties and everyone in this book has the capacity to choose the right thing. They don't always do it, right? King yep. never chooses the right thing. Haley never does. <laughs> Haley never does. But we always know that they have the capacity for it. And like when they choose not to, they're choosing not to, right? That's why Haley is so egregious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I do love that everyone gets a moment to shine. And it's not just like, oh, this person gets to stand on a soapbox and give a little speech and it makes you like them or dislike them. Everyone is just so multifaceted and complicated. Like, you can't read this book and say anyone is wrong or right. No. And action speaks so strongly in the book, too. Mm -hmm. It's not a book about fancy speeches for the most part, although Maverick has some great ones. He really does. <laughs> but it is mostly about what people choose to do and knowing people through their actions. I mean, that's really what happens with Haley, right? Is that Dar learns to trust herself and to recognize who people are through their actions, mm -hmm. which is what's so powerful. But so Haley, we haven't really said this, but Haley is one of her friends from school who has kind of always been the mean girl leader of their group. They're not mean yeah. girls, but she's kind of played that queen bee role. Yeah. And Star comes to recognize that Haley is actually pretty racist um, and calls her out on it. And the friendship dissolves as a result. But what Star recognizes is her own strength, right? And her own ability to come to her own defense, which mm -hmm. I know I harp on a lot about but gosh i like it when female characters get to come to their own defense in books 
Yes. And I would argue it's not even just that. Like, it's so much more than that. Star having the agency to stand up for herself, but also seeing her own worth and her own ability to make change and be the positive result that she wants to see. And we see it so directly in her ability to change Maya's way of looking at herself. So Maya is her friend who's Chinese-American, and she's also been on the receiving end of, of Haley's racism. And so by standing up for herself, Star inspires Maya to do the same. It's really quite a lovely moment of bonding in their friendship. Mm-hmm. But what I love too is that, sorry, I can just keep, I love it, I love it so much. Um, <laughs> you know, it's fantastic that Haley isn't like, oh, I don't like black people or I don't no. like this, right? Her racism is sadly so recognizable because I think it's the predominant mode Mm -hmm. that a lot of us, and I will 100% include myself in this, Mm -hmm. where we think that we are woke and that Mm -hmm. we are open to things. And then when push comes to shove, I think everybody sticks their feet in their mouth at different times, Mm -hmm. or they maybe aren't as informed as they should be, and they Mm -hmm. speak out of turn or something like that. The thing is, is that Star gives Haley multiple opportunities. And she's not even saying, like, I'm trying to change your mind. She's saying, you have hurt me and you have hurt Maya. Mm -hmm. And Haley refuses to even acknowledge that. She's, I mean, she's a perfect cipher for how white supremacy functions, right? Which is that refusal to recognize harm caused and refusal to change, refusal to adapt your behavior, refusal to respond appropriately right like you're right that so often star generously gives her the gift of education (laughs) like don't Mm -hmm. say things like that don't treat people like that your way of seeing the world is not the only way and Haley is so we see this time and time again right Haley is so arrested by the use of the word racist yes that she is incapable of looking inside and being self-reflexive Yeah, she's too busy being offended at being called a racist to realize that she is an effing racist. Yeah, yep. I guess I want to highlight too, and we don't typically do this partially because we're we're often recording fairly far in advance. I do kind of feel like we should acknowledge some of the recent things that have been happening in the world. Mm. Um, We're recording this in the wake of uh, what happened with the Covington students and... Um, sorry. <laughs> it's hard, right? Sorry. I definitely cried a few mm-hmm. times reading this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I told myself I was not going to get emotional. <laughs> One of the things that this book does really well that I also found emotionally impactful is that it is not a book... I don't think explicitly for white audiences, but it holds a mirror up to our own complicity in white supremacy, in state-sanctioned violence. Yeah. And it it does so in a way that is actually profoundly generous and compassionate. Yes. And that it allows us to have those of us who are who are white and who are complicit in the police state by virtue of our skin color and the privilege that comes with it. It gives us the opportunity to have an emotional and empathetic response to Star's experiences. And Thomas is too good of a writer to let us be defensive about it, I think. And that makes it very, very powerful. 
Yeah, and thank you for <laughs> allowing me a minute there to uh, recover myself. But I think really that's what Chris does well in this book. Yes, yes. So one of the things that you and I talked about offline before we began recording was I was texting you while I was finishing the movie this morning, and you mentioned that you were disappointed that the film seemingly gave Chris a very minor role to work mm -hmm. with. And maybe just for the purposes of keeping an eye on time, we'll roll the trailer so that sure. we can get that out of the way, and then we've got the opportunity to talk about both together. My name is Star. Two R's. Daddy named me that. Garden Heights. Mama and Daddy says our life is here because our people are here. We got Mr. Rubin's Barbecue, Mr. Lewis's Barbershop, and Daddy's Store. The high school is where you go to get junk, high, or pregnant. We don't go there. Williamson is another world, so when I'm here, I'm Star version 2. Yo, those kids are lit! Basically, Williamson Star doesn't give anyone a reason to call her ghetto, and I hate myself for doing it. Until the weekend comes around. I get those goosebumps every time. What's up? Where you been at? Now I know you be hanging with all the white kids. Shut up. Out of the car. Yo, Star, you okay? Go back where he told you. Khalil, I'm not playing. Go back where... <laughs> what did you do? Today, Garden Heights is reeling after the shooting of a 17-year-old black teenager by a white police officer. We live in a complicated world. It doesn't seem that complicated to me. Violence, brutality. It's the same story, just a different name. When I attack with impact, it's real tactful. The back cat waited and sat, debated to... It's best if she don't talk to father. He's threatening her. It's about more than just color. It's about black people, poor people, everybody at the bottom. I need to speak for him. So The Hate You Give is a 2018 film written by Audrey Wells, who sadly passed away just before I think the film came out. And it's directed by George Tillman Jr., who has a bit of experience working in some of these types of films. He directed Notorious, the Biggie Smalls biopic, and he's been involved in the barbershop films. So he's got a good handle on the material. The film stars Russell Hornsby as Maverick, Regina Hall as Lisa, Star's mom, Anthony Mackie as King, Issa Rae as Miss Ofra, the activist, Common as Uncle Carlos, and Amanda Stenberg as Star. But just coming back around to what you texted me about Chris, at the time, I think belittled your, your comment and was like, <laughs> I'm okay with it. Well, because it's pleased Archie. Archie plays <laughs> yes, the Chris character. And honestly, we can have too much Archie. Yes. So AJ <laughs> Kappa is in the film version as Chris. And he really isn't. He's not given a ton to do. At times, it almost feels like there's a misunderstanding about what his role is meant to be in this narrative. Mm -hmm. He is, to a certain extent, the white surrogate for audiences like you and I, mm -hmm. where we can... We can put ourselves into his shoes as the person who wants to be there for Star, but can literally never understand mm -hmm. what her experience is. Mm -hmm. And 
it's interesting to me because the film plays that a little too straight. So mm-hmm. he is this perfect understanding boyfriend and he says he doesn't see race he doesn't see color he only sees star but the film treats that i know like it's real and i shuddered because in the book chris wants to be that and then he has to go through a night of hell Mm -hmm. in star's community and it's made very evident that he not only has no idea what her existence is actually like but even at the end of that he still will never mm-hmm. be able to understand it. I think it comes back to what I was saying about how important actions are over words in the book. Chris ends up in like this crash course in effective allyship. Mm-hmm. And the culminating moment of both the film and the movie is when the grand jury decides not to indict the officer who murdered Khalil, there's a riot. There are protests, and then the protests turn into a riot. And in the book, Chris is with Star through all of that. And so he has this eye-opening. I mean, literally, they get tear gassed, so literal eye-opening experience. In the book, Chris is given an awful lot of fancy words, but his opportunities to act as an ally in real terms, in terms of action, are non-existent. So Star asks him to take two of the girls to safety. And so he misses all of the protest riot sort of plot line in the film version. And to me, on the one hand, I think it made for a visually stunning riot and protest scene because it was entirely from the perspective of the black characters, Mm -hmm. which is not how riots and protests are typically portrayed by white media, right? Typically, we see it from the police's perspective because that's typically where the journalists are standing. Right. And so there's something very visually powerful about removing Chris from that scene and just having the black characters focalize it and having a profound experience of empathy in seeing what those scenes look like from the inside. Yeah. And it makes Star the star, right? Like it is her moment alone. Yes. And I think that makes for a better visual symbol. Yes. But the unfortunate thing is that Chris's character loses all his teeth as a result. (laughs) Not literally. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, but like everything that makes him the opposite of Haley falls away because he ends up being just words and no action. Yeah. He's just a good boyfriend in the film. Yeah. He's 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 a good boyfriend. He doesn't have his lessons in allyship that he gets in the film in the book. Mm-hmm. So this film was very very well received to the extent that some pundits had expected that Russell Hornsby, who plays Maverick, Star's dad, some he's people so thought that good. he was actually going to pick up a surprise nomination. He did not, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, the category of YA makes it. I mean, not a lot of YA pictures get big nominations, right? It's true. Yeah. And to be honest, as much as I think Maverick is an incredible character and it's a great role, this doesn't have the scenery chewing that Mm. is typically requisite for old white folks who vote (laughs) on awards categories to say, wow, he really killed, you know, you need your your stupid, sorry, it's not stupid. You need your Malcolm X moment in order to, to get launched up into the level of generic white actors who will just get awards piled onto them so reminds me of my beloved nan who i miss very much who used to say that if you weren't doing an accent you weren't really acting (laughs) right yeah (laughs) and if it's um, not a period piece you're not going to win that costume award (laughs) and the thing is like 
the subtlety in Hornsby's performance in this role is, I found, so powerful. The way he, for the sake of his children, has to hold his profound rage (laughs) close to his chest. Like, you you can see how hard Maverick is working to be the kind of man he wants his kids to grow up to be. Yeah. And how every inch of his being wants to stab king in the throat (laughs) but he can't because he needs to be there for his kids and he needs to be he needs to represent to them another option another way of existing in the world like i just think he's phenomenal in this role to be honest i mean both book and film versions of maverick are amazingly rich complex characters And I think one of the things that always made me not giggle, but it amused me a little bit is how Maverick doesn't understand how much he means to Star and how vitally Mm -hmm. important he is because he Mm -hmm. is he is threatened by Carlos's presence. Right. So this is a, a person who seemingly is more well off and also got to spend that time with his children at these pivotal seminal moments. And Maverick mm-hmm. feels like he lost that time. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. his impetus for change. But he and Star are both living in two worlds, right? Like mm-hmm. There's he so is, much alike. He, they're so alike. He's a responsible store owner and a good dad. But you can tell he has the militancy of the Black Panther movement that he indoctrinates his children into at an early age so that they know their worth and they know... Mm-hmm that they need to be strong and stand up and use their voices. Like without him, Star would never have gone down the activist route that she would go in. And that's not to take anything away from her mom because I I love her mom and I love Regina Hall's performance as well. But it's Mm -hmm. it's not the focal point that no. The father-daughter relationship has. Absolutely. And part of that is because her mom makes the practical choices, right? And we see less internal turmoil about those choices mm-hmm. in Star's mom. Her Star's mom is more like, I'm taking this better job so that we will have a better life. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing that I'm doing. And I don't feel like I need to justify that to anyone, actually. Yeah. Um, I find her totally refreshing <laughs> for that reason. Well, and, and the fact that In both versions, when Maverick says something, everyone pays attention. But if Lisa says something, there is no discussion. She wears the pants. She is in control. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting that there isn't as much credit given to her for that. But it's a fun dynamic that Hornsby and Hall get to play off of each other. And I think it's, it's a really rich and loving set of characters in both the book and the film. I think it's a really... um honest (laughs) the lack of realization that star has about that dynamic i think is really true like we all have those moments in adulthood when we look back on our parents and we're like oh that's what was happening there (laughs) when i was eavesdropping and thinking i understood about the reality of these really heavy discussions like it's not as simple as hey i'm moving us out of the projects and into this place where you can leave the house and i don't have to worry about you getting gunned down in the street it's funny how star can turn situations into black and white Mm -hmm. um by sheer virtue of the fact that she she's only ready to accept so many complicated shades of gray She's a teenager. Yeah. And with her parents' <laughs> yeah. relationship, she's just kind of like, oh, are you are you guys fighting again? And they're kind of like, <laughs> you have no idea what we're like. <laughs> you have no idea what we're trying to do. <laughs> like, 
And I love that because the book exists on both registers in a way that other books we've talked about have tried to do, but have not been nearly so successful with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the ending of the film? <sighs> yes. <laughs> There's a couple of key differences. So I want to quickly go through some of the big changes sure. that the movie opts not to do. We talked about this offline. We both agree that this is kind of similar to our discussion from Dumplin, where there's so much going on in the book, there's no way it could translate to the finished film. But unfortunately, the film, well good, doesn't hit the same highs and it doesn't have the nuance that makes the book such a rich text. Like Dumplin, the book is doing a lot of radical work, not just in terms of representation, (laughs) not just in terms of representation, but in terms of like truly radical politics that unfortunately in 2019 are just not going to make a mainstream film. And it was true for the way body positivity and fat activism was dealt with in Dumplin. And it's true for the race politics of the hate you give. Yeah. So the character of Devante, he plays a really important function because it shows you the responsibility that Maverick has to the community and also yes, yes, it's his desperation to try to rescue more people from a life that he feels he didn't have an option out of. And it's interesting. I, I actually don't mind Devante's excision from the film because I do think that putting Seven into that role does work, but I do think that there's some interesting ideas that are lost Mm -hmm. as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Chris isn't used in quite the same way. One interesting distinction is that Star doesn't have a physical confrontation with Haley in the movie that she did in the book. I really don't like the way it's handled in the film. I do not like the way it was handled. It makes Star into this aggressor. Everything that Star works so hard to not allow Williamson Prep to believe about her, in the book version, it's like a second where she snaps. Yeah. In the film version, it's this sustained moment that seemed so outside of what she would ever truly allow herself to do in that context. And it bothered me. And it also made her, it made everything Haley thinks true in that moment. And that made me nuts. Hmm. That's interesting. I I didn't have quite the same reaction. I don't love it, but I did kind of like the idea of putting Haley through a simulation, even if only because, as you suggested, it's an action, right? So mm-hmm. in the book, the physical altercation, it's meaningless because it doesn't actually help Haley in any capacity. Whereas in the film, it's an attempt to get Haley to understand what an experience is like, and she still doesn't come around. So it makes it... Well, I see. My, my, my problem with it is that Haley cries. And the weaponized white girl tears in that scene, I'm left thinking about what everyone watching that scene is thinking. Right. And yeah. Haley very successfully turns herself into the victim in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it makes me so friggin' mad. <laughs> Uh, again, true to life, but I'm not going to cry. <laughs> okay, and then we get to the... It's interesting because I don't think it's a huge change, but it changes everything. So in the book, King sets Maverick's door on fire. The police and the fire trucks arrive, and the entire community gathers mm-hmm. and essentially accuses King of arson, and then mm-hmm. Devante turns... He turns snitch and... It's those actions that ultimately put 
king away and sends him to jail. And it's so important because King's power over the community has been this code of silence, mm-hmm. right? His whole power over the community is that no one speaks about his drug dealing, no one speaks about his violence, no one speaks about his control because they fear him. Yeah. And so to see the community members take this kind of enough is enough in defense of Maverick and the children mm-hmm. is so powerful in the book. It's really, really powerful. And it's the kind of cataclysmic shift that you're meant to read as the success that can't Mm -hmm. possibly come from the white society when the DA comes back with the, we're not going to pursue charges against 1-5, Officer 1-5. So this this is the true victory, and it comes from within the Black community. Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of thing where you say, this is the big change that offers hope for the future. Yes. So society will not change, but we as a community will take action to make it better for ourselves. And that's rich. That is so rich. And I love the fact that it comes, it's a different kind of action, right? Like it's not big and sensational. It's just people taking stars approach and using their voice. Yes. I love it. Okay. So the film, Hmm. same thing. King lights up Maverick's store, cops arrive, and everybody looks over and Star's younger brother, Sekhni, has a gun and he is aiming it at King. And there's the threat that the police officers will shoot Sakani and kill him. And Star then makes the decision to step in front of her younger brother and just repeatedly yell no at the officers until they decide not to shoot her or arrest them. And then Sakani puts down the gun and somehow things are better. The visuals of that scene really bother me because there are two white officers with their guns drawn. Mm -hmm. There are King and Maverick standing in opposition to each other, sort of triangulating the officers. Like if... The officers are in kind of the center and King is on the far right and Maverick's on the far left. And it draws an equivalency visually that made me profoundly uncomfortable. Like it drew an equivalency that made me think that the final message of that scene was hashtag all lives matter. So unpack that a little bit more. So when Sakani pulls the gun and the visuals are set up that way, It almost looks like these are equal aggressors. Maverick, police officer number one, police officer number two, King. And that they are all equally at fault. And the way Star is shot, screaming no, she's looking at all four men. Mm -hmm. She's not just looking at the police officers. She's looking at all four men. And it's this sort of enough is enough. We have to stop this. Yeah. Which... I think is meant to be a powerful message. It's meant to be a very powerful message. But the... For me, the end result as a viewer was that there's an equivalency there between the fault held by King, Maverick, and the police state. Right. (laughs) And the book works so hard to explain systemic racism to white audiences Mm -hmm. at, at a certain level. And I felt that all collapse in that moment. So All Lives Matter, if you're not obsessed about Twitter, is the is the sort of slogan that people use to counter or silence Black Lives Matter conversations. Um, So it's the idea that you can't just say Black Lives Matter because all lives matter. It's the argument that Haley uses for feeling bad for Officer 1-5, right? Like, oh, his family has been through so much. Isn't he as equal 
in deserving of your respect and your pity and all these other things? And the answer, by the way, if you're listening, is no. The answer is no. (laughs) Because systemic violence means that the default is for white lives to matter. And when people say black lives matter, they're not saying over and above everyone else. They're saying, please effing recognize that black lives have value and that they matter. And also that we are systemically punished typically by white lives. So one of the issues that I have with this all lives matters piece is the simple fact that people like to toss it around. And unfortunately, it's not an equalizer. And I think part of the reason that it does get used is because it makes people feel deeply uncomfortable. So I'm going to share an experience that I had. So I live in Toronto and two years ago during the Toronto Pride Parade, which is the biggest parade in all of Canada, two years ago, Black Lives Matter shut down the parade. They staged a sit-in in the middle of the parade and it was a peaceful protest but it disrupted things for i want to say like a good 30 minutes to maybe an hour and it ended up becoming a really sensational news item and i remember at the time being very frustrated with this outcome partially because the black lives matter group had not given any kind of notification that they were planning to do something so this was seen as an infringement on a large group of people's enjoyment you know the parade is a celebration it's a public declaration of the gay community and it was kind of like why are these people from another group attacking or contravening that And it took a lot of unpacking and a lot of people (laughs) adopting Angie Thomas's semantics to be like, hi, you need to check your privilege because in this situation, everybody made a big deal that their enjoyment of the day had been frustrated by this silent sit-in. What Black Lives Matter was basically saying is the same thing as what Angie Thomas and The Hate You Give was saying is that we can't have this kind of celebration because we are not allowed it because we are still the victims of systemic racism and all these other things that come with it and it affects our everyday life. So in Toronto, the practice of carding still exists to this day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So people, if you don't know what carding is, it's where the police can stop and search you with no warrant or any reason And they can literally just say, we think that you might have drugs. We think that you might have an illegal weapon. We just don't want you in this neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Like, hey, you may be walking while black or something along those lines. If listeners want to um, read a really amazing personal essay about that, uh, well, personal essay, but also backed up with a lot of research, Desmond Cole's The Skin I'm In, which was published in Toronto Life, I think in 2016. You can find it online to read if you just Google Desmond Cole, The Skin I'm In, it'll come up. And it's a phenomenal first-person reflection on what it does to your sense of belonging in a city to be constantly exposed to the practice of carding. It's one of those things where I'm really deeply ashamed of the reaction that I had that day. And it's taken me several years now to really come around to the idea that I don't always approve of the way that Black Lives Matters and other groups 
go about their activism. And I absolutely recognize that I am a hypocrite and Mm. I need to check my own privilege and especially my white privilege. And I can talk all I want about how I am Chris the ally in this situation. (laughs) And I don't have any idea what the lives of others are actually like. And to now bring it back to the book, I would encourage people not just to read this book or to watch this movie because the movie is good. I would say read the book. It is good. (laughs) Please read the book. Because it does put you into an uncomfortable place where that voice is so authentic. The situations are so grounded and vitally rich and important. But it will also help you to hit some of those uncomfortable places that will help more people to understand that there is a reason why these activities and these events continue to happen and why we should be more involved than we have been. It's hard to recognize, and I'm speaking as a white person to our white listeners, and I'm, I'm sorry to, to not address POC here, but I don't, I don't think I can. It's hard to come to terms with the realization that whiteness is violent, that structuring society on racial terms, which is what the invented category of whiteness was designed to do mm-hmm. is an act of violence and white people we all have an awful lot not just of learning and listening to do but of unlearning yeah. to do and recognizing the myths of equality and meritocracy that we've been taught that aren't reality for like huge swaths of people yeah our experience is not their experience and to impose that and to get our backs up is not an appropriate response. No, and defensiveness. You know, we don't want to be Haley. We don't want to go through life being Haley. And defensiveness is a natural first reaction when you're confronted with something you don't want to hear. A very wise friend of mine pointed out that you can't stop your first reaction, but you can think past it. (laughs) You can have that first reaction of defensiveness, have it to yourself. (laughs) Don't make your defensiveness the problem of the marginalized person who's trying to talk to you about something. Especially if they're taking the time to try to help you to understand and to educate you, because that is also not their responsibility. No, it's a generous act. And uh, Angie Thomas's book is... Like she is doing us a service. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's a powerful book of a black representation, especially for teen girls. I think there's a lot in Star's character that is missing from most of YA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot here for young black girls. There's a lot here for the black community in general. There's a lot here for readers who are not represented elsewhere. But what a gift to those of us who sit in the majority position to be educated in such a profoundly generous and empathetic way. Yeah. And entertaining. This is and entertaining. This is the it's such a good of sugar, people. <sighs> It is. One of the things that I really like about the book is that Angie Thomas never underestimates us as readers. She believes in our capacity to understand what she has to tell us. I think the the challenges to this book are a suggestion that maybe we're not. Um, <laughs> or maybe just but, a, a subset of us are not. Are you saying not all white people, Joe? <laughs> I'm saying do better people like if you're protesting books that is a 
That is strike one. (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. A strong strike against your character if you think that banning books for (laughs) truth-telling, like, you need to check yourself. (laughs) It's very true. It's very true. It's interesting, too, because these are all the folks who, like, when you want to have a conversation about decolonization and you want to make safe spaces that are inclusive and safe for different perspectives, they're the ones who are like, well, that limits my free speech, but also ban this book. Yes. That's my caricature, (laughs) but I stand by it. Yeah. I don't know, Joe, do you think we're done? Honestly, this is another one of those where I feel like we could talk about all of the fantastic character beats you know the book is hilarious and there's so so funny yeah like there's just so much pure enjoyment to be had oh powerful use of music too we haven't even talked about both in the book and the film Yep, really powerful use of music the performative transformative potential of rap and Mm hip-hop is never more carefully realized than in this book i don't think it's just incredible yes and i love how for white culture that comes out as fresh prince references But I love how much she loves Fresh Prince. Yes. Star loves Fresh Prince, like, unabashedly. And that is this, like, bond that she and Chris share that is, like, the cutest thing. Like, I really, I just, I think we need to make sure people know how freaking cute this book is in moments. And funny. And, and romantic. And, and romantic. Yeah. And the f- moments of, like, family companionship and friendship. Like, another great set of parents. Mm-hmm. There's so much in this book that isn't heavy and isn't sort of issue oriented and yet and yet yet. that's all there too thomas is a treasure and her next book is called on the come up and you should just go and pre-order it now and the early reviews are coming in and apparently it's just everything that you would want it's just as good Mm -hmm. which is very exciting so exciting i love her yeah okay but let's let's wrap it up there just to say (laughs) (laughs) this has been tough yeah. I apologize for losing my cool. Actually, you know what? I don't apologize for losing my cool because I think it's a testament to the product. Agreed. Totally agreed. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I cry. <laughs> <laughs> People who know me are like, of course you do. <laughs> Literally all the time. Christmas commercials. Crying at the gym right now. Great British um. Bake Off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Great British Bake Off is way more moving than it has any right to be. Can we just say that? Yeah, Sidebar Nation, also good. <laughs> the, the extremely white folks of... Actually, no, that's not even... There's there's a good amount of representation on Great British Bake Off. I'm always impressed by the diversity of the, of the cast. And one of the things I love about that show is how people like bring their flavors and their seasonings oh, yeah. from home and from like everywhere. really challenge the hosts to like be yeah. open-minded about it. I think that's pretty cool. Not that this is a podcast of a great, great bit of British Bake Off, but it could be. Brenna and I will do Patreon exclusives of Great British Bake Off. <laughs> Nine seasons. Let's go. <laughs> we'll do it. It feels really frivolous to do a YA bingo here, but it might be a nice way to wrap up the show. Yes. Okay. So. Bingo. Not a good bingo. Our card we are is in an up. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> We're in an interesting situation where our bingo card is full. Yes. So we will have to make some hard decisions as to whether we want to remove pre-existing sections so that we can put in new ones or if we want to keep it as is so what are you thinking i'm gonna suggest an alteration of a category so we have a funny parents category we do and i'm going to expand funny parents okay because we really didn't mean crappy funny parents right like we were talking about the parents in 
easy uh, a. a right and so we were talking about warm mm-hmm. funny parents you would like love to have yes and so i want to expand that category to call it model parents maybe or like ideal parents dream parents and i'm gonna put stars parents right in there that's like the center cube too it deserves it yeah. <laughs> okay so that's a good way of getting out of doing some hard work, by the way. <laughs> but also, also, can I give another one? I just thought of another one. You can, but it has to oh, either yeah, you fit haven't into done the one existing... <laughs> no, I know. No, I know. But we, it is. It's already on our list. 90s callbacks. Okay. Yeah. There are a ton of 90s callbacks in this in this um, book. There really are. Star has a heady love of 90s culture, which and is so great. so do her parents. It's so cute when her mom starts singing Push It. Yes. <laughs> Very fun. Yep. Okay, so I'm going to make a ballsy move and suggest that we excise the abortion excision. Are you aborting my category, Jill? When you put it that way, it sounds super offensive, and I don't appreciate that. Uh, I think just because we've only encountered it once, whereas for almost all of the other ones, I feel like we've encountered it a couple of times. Totally. No, I'm, I'm fine with that. So I'm going to suggest that we switch that out for activism. Oh, cool. Yes, good. Because I'd love us to read more things with activism. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we're still in this situation where we've got a ton of great books and no film adaptations I on know. the horizon. <laughs> so, I know. But the fact that this book was adapted into a film gives me hope that people can see the commercial potential of a well-told story on a hard topic. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of the commercial potential of a well-told story on a hard topic, Mm. next week we're talking about kids with cancer. Yeah, we are. (laughs) That's a segue that I never thought I'd make. Um, Next week we are talking about another title character. Two in two weeks. Two in two weeks. We're talking about Hazel. Um, Hazel Grace Lancaster, the protagonist of John Green's The Fault in Our Stars. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're heading next week. Yeah. So get ready to cry some more, Joe. Uh, Maybe. We'll we'll (laughs) see. We'll see about it. (laughs) So Brenna, where can people reach you if they want to get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. And I am also on Twitter at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And if you're trying to get a hold of us, please use the hashtag HKHSPod. Yes, please use that hashtag to tell us how great you think Angie Thomas is. Oh my gosh, yes. Give Angie Thomas all the love. And also, follow her on Twitter because oh, she is a joy and she mm-hmm. does not take crap from anybody. No. And I <laughs> no, love she does it. Not. She is a joy. I won't lie. One of my favorite tweets from this uh, past week was she retweeted it. So I didn't know who the person was, but someone wrote, good morning to everyone except Haley. (laughs) 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 And of course, I didn't get it at the time because I hadn't finished the book yet. And then I was like, oh, yes, yes to this. (laughs) I enjoy this tweet a lot. Haley should transfer to Covington. (sighs) Oh, my gosh. I know. I just can't i know so we won't and until next time i will see you on the page and i'll see you on the screen Bye-bye. bye bye